World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Okumbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In times of economic uncertainty, during wars, pandemic, and bouts of high inflation, people would typically put their money in gold. But is the shiny stuff still the safe haven investment it used to be, or has it lost its luster? And mountains can get really, really tall. But have you ever wondered what's stopping them from getting even taller? Well, allow our correspondent to explain. But first. The last time a soldier crossed the border at the joint security area between North and South Korea, it was in a hail of bullets. Oh Chung-sung, a North Korean soldier, was shot and wounded five times by his comrades in 2017 as he sprinted towards South Korea and freedom. But on July 18th, a young man crossed in the opposite direction. Andrew Knox is our Korea's correspondent. That young man has since been identified as Private Travis King, an American soldier in the 1st Armored Division. Mr. King was on a tour of the Joint Security Area, or JSA as it's more commonly known. It's a very popular tourist attraction. He decided to make a break for the North and sprinted towards the border. Eyewitnesses report that he was laughing at the time, and tour guides tried to stop him, but they weren't successful. He's now believed to be in North Korean custody. Okay, what was Travis King's plan here? It's really unclear at the moment. We've heard nothing from Mr. King since, nor anything from the North Koreans. And we really just don't know what his motives were in doing this. He seems to have been in some trouble during his time in South Korea in the past. Court reports suggest that he got in trouble for kicking a police car in Seoul repeatedly, and he received a fine for that. There's also a report that he may have assaulted someone. He seems to have spent just shy of two months in a South Korean prison. Local reports have suggested that it might have been that he didn't pay this fine for kicking the police car and it compounded. But again, details are as of yet, still being confirmed. He was, however, handed back to the United States authorities, and he was supposed to be sent back to Texas, where he's from, to potentially face justice at the hands of a military tribunal. They took him as far as the airport at Incheon, which is sort of out to the west of Seoul, but at some point he appears to have made his way from the airport onto this tour of the JSA. Do we have any idea what the North Koreans might do with him? There's some examples from the past that may 
give us some idea of, you know, the options at least. It's possible that he may be a useful bargaining chip for them. I mean, he's a serving American soldier, and they've previously used American captives as a way of getting face time with senior American officials. Long after their presidencies had ended, both Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton took separate trips to Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, in order to secure the release of American hostages. Mike Pompeo took a similar trip in 2018, securing the release of three Americans. And this was in the run-up to the summits that eventually happened between Kim Jong-un, North Korea's dictator, and then-President Donald Trump. Whether or not Mr. King might be a bargaining chip and used in that particular way sort of depends on whether or not the North Koreans are interested in bargaining. And do you think that they will? I mean, their government isn't exactly known for being the most diplomatic. (laughs) No, indeed. To be honest, I think it's more to do with whether they think they can get anything out of negotiations. Things are tense on the peninsula, but then again, they always are. What's perhaps more important is that the North Koreans are in the middle of weapons testing. They fired off a record number of rockets up last year, and they've done a fair few this year, including two tests of a brand new solid fuel ICBM. So while they're still in the process of that uh, development of their weapons program, they don't really have any particular compulsion to talk. America has constantly reiterated that it's open to dialogue without preconditions with them. But lurking in the background of these offers, there is a pretty huge precondition, which is that they're not really willing to talk unless the complete denuclearization of North Korea is in some way on the table. Kim Jong-un has no interest whatsoever in that and has said so on multiple occasions. And his sister, Kim Yo-jong, who is in charge of their propaganda operation at the moment, even compared these repeated American calls for dialogue without preconditions to being like an answering machine. Okay, so just coming back to Travis King... Have any Americans done this kind of thing before? Are there similar cases for us to learn from and look to? If indeed Mr. King has defected, which again, we really just don't know at this moment, the most notable examples are actually from quite a while ago, from the Cold War. So one particularly famous example is of James Comrade Joe Dresnuk, an American soldier who fled across the minefields of the DMZ in 1962 in order to escape a court-martial. He ended up becoming a minor celebrity in North Korea, along with some other American soldiers who had defected at various points during the Cold War, by playing evil American imperialists in propaganda films. I think Mr. Dresnick died in 2016, and the following year, two of his sons spoke in a propaganda film about their father. They said that he had told them to be faithful workers and devote themselves to Kim Jong-un, and also to vow to wipe the U.S. from the earth forever if war should ever break out. Those sort of examples from the Cold War are a long time ago when North Korea was quite a different place. More recently, American defectors have had less luck building a life there. Matthew Miller, a 26-year-old Californian, was arrested for espionage in 2014 and sentenced to six years hard labor 
after he tore up his tourist visa once he arrived in North Korea and claimed political asylum. In the end, he was released after eight months, thanks to intervention by America's then director of national intelligence, who came to North Korea to get him out. So if Travis King does want to come back, could he? The North Koreans may try to hold on to Mr. King until they're ready for talks, but they may also decide that they're just not interested in talking for now and that it's not worth the hassle of holding on to him as the Americans demand his return. The last American who was captured by the North Koreans, Bruce Lawrence, was actually released after only about a month, though it's worth bearing in mind that he was arrested at a time when Trump and Kim were still holding summits. It was between the first and the second. But I think a lot of people following this story will remember in particular the case of Otto Warmbier, who was an American college student who allegedly stole a North Korean propaganda poster and then was sentenced to 15 years in prison in 2016. Mr. Warmbier experienced brain damage under incredibly unclear circumstances and after long negotiations was allowed to be taken home by the Americans where he died not very long after. Mr. King ought to hope that he's got a prompt release on the cards. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. During economically turbulent times, gold has often been considered the best safe haven to protect wealth. But despite soaring inflation across the world in the last couple of years, as a result of rampant money printing by central banks, the global pandemic and the war in Europe, the price of gold has barely increased. So why is that? Gold has always been an asset that people have been interested in investing in because it's been regarded as valuable for an enormously long period of time. Alice Forward is the co-host of Money Talks, our podcast on business and finance. So gold has had a historical role as the sort of asset backing money. So a lot of paper monies that we use today were backed by gold, even as recently as sort of 50 years ago. Gold has always been used in fine jewellery, so women have always adorned their sort of necks or wrists or hands with gold. It's also in finite supply and is relatively durable. So there's a limited quantity of gold that will ever exist, and it will exist probably for forever. And for all of these reasons, gold is thought of as something of a safe haven investment. So in periods of very high inflation, you tend to see people flocking into gold. So it's popular in places like Argentina. Also in times of economic uncertainty, like war or other sort of great economic shocks, it tends to go up in value because people are fleeing from exciting assets like stocks or cryptocurrency or whatever, and into very long-standing, reliable investments like gold. But 
it is still a strange financial asset because it doesn't generate any value itself. So if you buy gold and hold it, you're not earning any cash flows or dividends or coupons, unlike, say, if you buy bonds or shares. And so how has gold been faring recently? So because gold is a sort of hedge against these bad things. It's a hedge against inflation. It's a hedge against sort of economic stress or uncertainty. You might think that the last two years would have been brilliant for holders of gold. Inflation has been soaring. War has broken out in Europe. But on January 1st of 2021, an ounce of gold cost just under $1,900. And now it's really not that different than that. An ounce of gold costs around sort of 1980 at the moment. So if you'd bought gold in January 2021, you would have made a gain of just 3%. And Alice, why hasn't it gone up? So the reason that gold prices haven't done better is linked to the lack of yield on gold. Gold, as we discussed, generates no cash flows, which means that its price tends to be inversely correlated with real interest rates, which is the yield that an investor can get on holding a bond or putting their money in a savings account after that's been adjusted for inflation, which is a measure of how much sort of actual return an investment is yielding. So when the real yield on very safe assets like treasury bonds are high, Assets that don't generate any cash flows, don't have any yields, they become much less appealing because you can earn a nice real yield just by parking your money in this sort of super safe asset like a treasury. Now, as inflation goes up, the real yield on assets tends to go down because that adjustment that you're making for inflation, whatever yields you're getting minus the inflation rate, that sort of minus measure is getting bigger and bigger. That inflation rate is getting higher and higher. And so you might expect that real yields would decline. And that would be great for gold. As we said, sort of gold is inversely correlated with real yields. But actually, that hasn't happened over the past couple of years. And that's because interest rates have gone up a lot more than sort of long term expectations of inflation have. So, for instance, if you look at the real 10 year Treasury yield, it climbed from around minus 0.25% at the start of 2021 to about 1.4% now. So, it's actually gone up pretty significantly. And what this implies is that the sort of bout of inflation that we've had, this sort of rise over the past couple of years, investors don't really think that's going to be a long-term issue. So you have a sort of modest move in inflation expectations, and you've had a much more significant move in the interest rate. And so in aggregate, real interest rates have risen. So this age-old idea that gold is an inflation hedge doesn't quite hold up? It really depends on other factors. You have to balance what's happening with inflation with what's happening with other sort of macroeconomic variables. In 2021, researchers at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago analysed what they thought were the sort of main factors behind gold prices since 1971, which is the year that America came off the gold standard, which was when its sort of currency was sort of officially backed by gold. And they identified the sort of three main factors that they thought drove gold prices, which we've already talked about. So one is gold as an inflation hedge. One is gold as a hedge against economic catastrophe, things like war. And the other one is the way that gold prices are affected by these real interest rates. And they tested changes in gold prices against each of these sort of main factors. And tell us what they found. Do these things have any real effects on gold prices? 
what they found is that all of these sort of rubrics we have about how gold prices should react to things like inflation, war, or real interest rates, they all seem to hold up. So gold does hedge against inflation, and it tends to rise in price as well when economic circumstances are gloomy. But still, the evidence was the most robust for the impact that real interest rates have on gold prices. So that negative effect was apparent in the data, regardless of the sort of frequency they looked at or the way in which they tried to measure the impact of real interest rates. And the overall point that this paper makes is essentially gold is an inflation hedge, but it only really works as a specific inflation hedge in the scenario in which policymakers and central bankers sort of don't jump into action. So in the scenario where you have a really significant rise in interest rates to try and head off the inflationary cycle, actually, it will be kind of a wash for gold prices because you have it sort of acting as an inflation hedge on the one hand and then it being undercut by these sort of rising real interest rates on the other. And that's exactly what we've seen over the last couple of years. Alice, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, sorry. It's been a pleasure. Mountains, formed when the Earth's plates collide and buckle, pushing the Earth's crust towards the sky. It's a feat of majesty in nature that seems nearly magical, as if the peaks should keep rising higher and higher indefinitely. In practice, of course, they do not. There's a host of geographical processes that are supposed to keep mountains from becoming too tall. In geology, not like in the economy, nothing is too big to fail, not even mountains. And the dominant explanation for why mountains don't keep growing is the glacial buzzsaw hypothesis. Gilad Amit is a science correspondent for The Economist. Now, this is a model that says when mountains reach a certain height, their surface temperature drops below freezing and the ground is frozen and they accumulate glaciers. Now, these glaciers are very effective at eroding mountains quickly And this sort of prevents any mountain from growing much above that glacial zone. But there are still some peaks that grow extremely high, and these are very steep, too steep even for glaciers to stick to. But even these very steep peaks don't grow forever. So some other mechanism is needed to erode them, and there is new research that seems to offer an answer. And tell me more about this new research. What does it say? So in a new paper in Nature, a geologist at the University of Lorraine called Jerome Lave presents evidence of an enormous landslide that occurred in the Himalayas about 800 years ago. Now, if he's right, this is one of the biggest landslides we've ever recorded. If the accumulated rubble was piled on the island of Manhattan, it would reach the top of the Empire State Building. We're talking 27 cubic kilometers of rock. And it would have dramatically changed the landscape. Annapurna 4, which is a mountain in the Himalayas, now stands about 7,500 meters high. Now, this enormous landslide would have cut its height by about 500 meters. It would suggest that similar mechanisms may play an important role in keeping tall mountains just tall, not too tall. And how do you go about getting new research on what was possibly an 800-year-old landslip? So that's a very good question. It started with unrelated fieldwork that Dr. Lavey was doing several hundred kilometers away in Nepal about a decade ago. And he was extracting what are cores of rock, which are these 
sort of 50 meter long vertical cylinders that are extracted in order to work out what the composition of the ground has been over the past hundreds of years. And he found within that vertical cylinder of rock that there had been maybe four or five meters of rock that could only have come from the Himalayas, which, as I say, were hundreds of kilometers away. And this suggested that there was, at some point about 800 years ago, a landslide. Now, he then looked at satellite imagery and even took a slightly hair-raising helicopter ride into the area to identify other potential rubble fields and even steep faces of mountains to suggest that they had been shorn abruptly. And he then collected some rocks from the areas that he thought corresponded to the site of the landslide, sent them off for analysis and dating. Interestingly, you can identify how long a rock has either been at the surface for or how long formerly surface rock has been buried by looking at certain isotopes that they contain. And the dating studies showed that all of these different fields of rubble probably dated to about 1190 AD, suggesting this enormous landslide. So landslides and not glaciers then would be responsible for keeping mountains small? I think it's not necessarily either or. It's possibly both. If glaciers are the buzzsaw that does most of the heavy lifting, then landslides might be the sandpaper or whatever other tool is needed to get into the hard-to-reach crevices that are left. Dr. Lavi's idea is basically that once these very, very steep mountains get too high to be eroded by glaciers anymore, they just keep growing until the weight that accumulates is too much for the slopes lower down. These are slopes that aren't yet frozen, and so they are weaker. And then once this accumulated weight gets too high, a landslide such as the one that occurred 800 years ago will happen, and the mountain will no longer be so high. Working out the exact details of these tipping points and just how high a mountain can grow and just how often landslides like this happen, this is the sort of thing that will require other helicopter rides to the Himalayas to find out. Gilad, thank you so much for your time. Ore, always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show by dropping us a line at podcast at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. As always, the link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Data is the lifeblood of business and society. Want to get better with it? Register now for Economist Education's new two-week course, Data Storytelling and Visualization, starting on July 31st. Designed by The Economist journalists, you'll learn how to create compelling infographics, reveal hidden insights, and to persuade others. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 15% off with the code DATA. So sign up now at economist.com slash datacourse. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, 
award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.